discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roundtable. Coming to you from Beijing, I'm He Yang. Good to have you along. A recent industry report shows that many electric vehicles reached about 1.4 million units in wholesale volume in China last year. Now you can spot tiny electric cars in the streets of big metropolises, as well as small alleyways and townships in this country. What is making mini EVs so popular in China, and will it replace fossil-fueled cars? And we'll share with you what's made us happy this week in Roundtable's Happy Place. For today's program, I'm joined by Ningjing in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. First on today's show. The best-selling electric vehicle in China in 2022 was a miniature car. They are affordable, maneuverable, great for urban driving, and even more energy efficient than full-size electric cars. While these mini EVs have been billed as a cheaper and eco-friendly alternative to traditional gas-guzzling vehicles and full-size EVs, car safety remains a contested issue. Many EV manufacturers need to address. So let's go to Ningjing first. How big are we talking about the mini EV market? For a lot of people who are paying attention to this market, they know that mini EV is taking the market by storm. This car type is the underdog of the car industry, underestimated for years because of their very cheap price and their small body size. Nonetheless, they have always occupied the top spot in this overall sales of the new energy、uh, vehicle market. And according to China Automotive News, the wholesale sales of mini EV cars reached 985,000 units in the year 2021, accounting for nearly 30% of EV car sales total of that year. In 2022, the wholesale sales of mini EV cars reached. Reached about 1.4 million. That's another increase over the previous year, accounting for more than 21.5 percent of EV car sales, becoming the largest market segment in the new energy car market for two consecutive years. This growth trend of mini EV cars is slowing down a little bit compared. To previous year, but mini EV cars have shown considerable market potential. That's the agreement from a lot of industry insiders. Right. So, are we kind of seeing that the traditional market share that very small cars used to occupy have now sort of been taken up by mini EVs? What's your observation, Josh? And also,、um, if you visit. Europe or the UK, you see these small cars running in the streets and parked neatly and nicely alongside the narrow streets, which is something you don't necessarily see in the US, for example. So,、mm -hmm. Josh, give us an overview of mini cars and also these mini EVs. How are they doing in the UK? Well, I think that you've kind of encapsulated. Not the issue, but something quite interesting in what you just said is that the wording around what these vehicles actually are, and as we move into becoming more electric, just generally with vehicles, right? What are these cars? Are they、mm. just going to be small vehicles? Are they mini EV? What makes a car a mini EV? When does it become a mini EV or an NEV, a, a neighbourhood electric vehicle, or 
in the UK and in the EU, we have this word quadricycle, which is even more confusing, right? Yeah. Um, so what are they and does it really matter? I'm not sure if they will replace all small cars, but I do think that electrified vehicles certainly will. And I do think that some of these mini EVs are going to get faster. And so if that means that they're going to replace them, then I think, yes, they will. And that's actually one of the issues in countries like the United States, where the cars are not, these EVs are actually not road legal in certain states in the US. And as we know certain states have different laws, right? And one of the main reasons for this actually is because they don't go fast enough. So if they were more road friendly um, and they could go faster, then they'd be highway capable or in the UK, we call them motorway capable. That would presumably allow them to dominate the market even more. But right now, I know that a lot of these mini EVs, quadricycles, NEVs are all limited to certain speeds, right? Mm -hmm. And I also know that in certain countries, you don't even need the same license to drive them. Well, that actually does broaden the discussion and also adds confusion for a lot of people who don't watch these uh, different car types so closely because in the streets of China, sometimes in the bike lane, you see these like tricycle looking semi-cars, whatever you call them. And these are not the mini EVs we're talking about either. So yes, this sounds like a very competitive road space. And uh, Ningqing, could you help us clarify a little bit more of what exactly kind of EVs are we talking about here? And also, why are they so popular or more popular here in China as opposed to some of the other places? Right. When I first uh, come across the mini EV cars, I was thinking of the same thing. Are they the sort of thing like the electric scooter cars that He Yang has just I mentioned? To describe. <laughs> yeah. For listeners who are not quite familiar with the traffic regulations here in China, those kind of cars are not allowed on the street. So definitely we're not referring to those cars. I checked the pictures online of the mini EV cars here in China. Usually those cars look very much like smart produced by Mercedes-Benz. It's more like that sort of cars that we are talking about today. Just to clarify on that first, why these cars are getting popular here in China, I think it just meets a lot of expectations of people. When people want to purchase the EV cars, they think about the price, the design, whether they are environmentally friendly and driving range. For this particular car type, they also think of the same thing. And many of the things just meet the expectations of the young consumers. For example, they're very cheap. That's the major appeal for the young people, especially for those who just graduate from college. This could be just the ideal thing for them to commute to work every day. You can drive away a base model of EV car with merely 30,000 to 40,000 yuan. That's just around 45,000 US dollars. I think that's quite affordable. Also, consumption attitudes towards cars are changing. Traditionally, Chinese people love to buy cars that are spacious, and they often see these cars as an extension to their living room. They also value families when it comes to travel. They will think about 
Okay, are there enough seats inside the car for mom and dad, two kids, and a dog? So when they think of these things, they tend to buy the very big cars and they think about the driving range. But nowadays, people are thinking probably I should just get a car as a commuting tool. And so this type of cars meet that demand. And they're easy to drive and park. And there's one more very important appeal to Chinese people which is perhaps not something very common in the Western society. That is the license plate issue. In big cities in China, like Beijing, Shanghai, we all have this lottery system regarding who's going to get the license plate for cars. Usually in Shanghai, it's going to cost 100,000 yuan for a car license plate. But with 100,000 yuan, you can pretty much buy a car already. So when you think about such things, you would say, why don't I just spend 40,000 yuan, get myself a car, and you can get a green car plate, which can guarantee you travel to any place within the city. That's the very, very important issue for people who are living in first tier cities. And of course, the design appeals to young people too, because nowadays you can see very bright candy colored mini EV cars on the road. If you are not happy with that color, you can just do a makeover over the looks of those cars. And that's also something that young people value because it just reflects their character and they want to look cool and posh sometimes. These are the things that I think are influencing people's decision for going for the mini EV cars here in China. All right. Well, certainly there might be a mood shift in people's idea of car ownership in the sense that maybe it's less of a status symbol for Chinese people now, but I still sometimes would put a question mark there. And for young people, also just the layout for some of the Chinese cities, especially the smaller cities, it just makes perfect sense to either drive an electric scooter or have one of these small or tiny EVs because they're so easily maneuverable in these narrow streets and supposedly they're easy to park and that's been uh, seen as a major advantage. But if you're going long distance, if you are living in a city, I wonder if this is something that people will think about the climate, as in if it's like really cold and you have like a lot of rain or snow or whatnot, would you want that small, tiny car? I don't know if this is going to be a factor that people are going to think about. And obviously, climate change, you know, these huge issues that the whole world is grappling with, it has something to do with it. But what's kind of interesting here is I don't really see the Chinese uh, mini- EV owners necessarily making the claim that we want to save the environment. They're very honest in saying, well, it's cheap, it's affordable, and it's practical. So it's kind of interesting to see that mood sort of reflected kind of differently in different countries. Josh, I want to check with you. What do you think about the possible reasons that drives this popularity and also the limitations, the obvious limitations that these vehicles or not depends on how you categorize them also display? Well, I think you've Hit the nail on the head. I have to agree with you um, that cost, low cost is certainly one of the biggest factors. But I do think that it's probably 
maybe one of the main reasons as to why these smaller vehicles are more popular in developing countries um, because the cost, the savings coming from this and these tiny battery packs is just so significant. Mm. And also the way a lot of these developed or recently developed cities are laid out, just as you mentioned, they do tend to have narrower streets. They do have tend to have more high-rise buildings closer together um, when compared to developed countries where cities have maybe existed for a longer period of time. There are wider roads, the roads have been kept wide and so cars can fit. Um, and I think that there's some other pros as well, not just for the consumer, but also for manufacturers. I think that in a country like China where e-commerce is so, so powerful, so vast and so competitive, things like mini EVs, it gives manufacturers quite a lot of room to play with design, to try different things out, to keep things trendy because they're so quick to assemble, because in many instances, they're so cheap to assemble. It means that it's much easier to play with new concepts. And so this really does offer an opportunity, especially in China, with things like Alibaba and Taobao to really um, play with this and play on consumer trends and just trends in general. Um, also, I know something that I've noticed living in China is that a lot of these vehicles are also being used by local governments for things like policing and garbage collection as well. Um, I'm not saying that this isn't possible in a country like my own, but I don't know why it just seems so bizarre to me to take away what we call the bin men or the trash collectors. They've oh. just been there for, it seems, for hundreds of years. And um, I, I don't know if that could ever really change. It's such an ingrained industry and part of our culture. Um, and also, there's this thing that you mentioned as well, which I think is a big factor in a country like my own, which everybody knows in England, what is the main issue we have? Maybe not the main one, but one, it is rain. Mm. It is always raining. It's always gray. And these vehicles, let's be honest, they do not offer you a fraction of the protection, the warmth, the protection from the elements, from the weather that these small electric vehicles do. They're some of the major points that I have here. Right. Well, certainly we've seen that in China, most government vehicles or these public buses or whatnot, they've all gone green. So they're powered by electricity or these uh, lithium batteries or whatnot. With these very small, many EVs, um, now we're seeing still it's mostly individuals. Uh, possibly young individuals who haven't necessarily started a family or whatnot might be the target consumer base there. Josh, I want to check with you. Like the days when I was living in London, I remember, you know, you have these really narrow and old streets. Yeah. And I see the drivers. Okay, if there was a huge traffic jam, then of course, you know, people slow down. But often still these London drivers manage to like, just go by a <laughs> tremendous speed and there's so many turns and they managed to do it so well. Yeah. And even in the British English countryside, there are these really wavy roads and then they're really narrow. And I always wonder, wow, this is a great place for smaller cars. And also, I think this is maybe, you know, due to the lack of, um, you know, vanity that people in your country 
display, which I think is a good thing that it's like, okay, you know, I just drive a small car. So what? And then I still remember in China for years, though, like people were like, well, you know, if I drive a small car, that's not good for the face, you know, although maybe we're seeing that change. So but I tend to think if you're a developed country and if you're a country of people who are proud of their heritage, confident about their being, then I wouldn't need a big car. I w- I <laughs> but anyway, that's a bit of a side note and different country of people have different ideas. And yes, in the US, everything is so massive, like monster trucks everywhere. And I always wonder when people on the one hand claim that they care about the environment, on the other hand, they get into these monster trucks. And when you live in a big city or whatnot, like you don't need a car with such high power and um, but people still go for it and then that's um, maybe on the change but still there's there's an interesting cultural difference in how people perceive their vehicles as an extension of themselves so I'm off point a little bit (laughs) I think for people who are living in London if they want to own a car the expense is something they think about before they go through the purchasing stage because there's the congestion fee if you want to enter the city center and also for people who do not want to spend so much on their cars probably they won't feel so much bothered because London has got a very extensive subway system that they call the tube that can take them pretty much everywhere yes indeed And when we talk about the mini EV or any vehicle out there, there's one essential question. Are they safe? Well, that's that's a difficult question. I think that you guys have got some more statistics about China to to back this up. But um, I would say for the most part there, um, it depends what you mean by safe, right? Because there's the greater picture, the environment traffic um, space that's taken up and then does that equate to more safety in a city I think to some degree it does um, lower speeds does that equate to more safety for the pedestrian oh, maybe it does in many cases but I assume that you're probably alluding to being in the vehicle and the driver's safety and if that's the case then I don't think that my initial reaction would be that they're not necessarily more safe um, I can't see them being so uh, in the United Kingdom on any busy kind of road but right now because their speed is so limited they are relatively safe obviously otherwise they wouldn't be road legal in so many places i think in china we have put in place new standards regarding this sort of cars so before they are allowed on the road they should be able to meet certain safety standards having said that there are still some concerns on the minds of car owners before they place the order on some models there used not to be all those safety components in those cars for example the built-in air conditioners airbags which should be the standard features on cars but with some very base models some of those things are missing but The good news is you can have these features added if you purchase the very updated versions. But of course, it will cost you a little bit more than the base versions. Right. And also, one thing I appreciate about being on this show is our panelists always provide different ways of dissecting the issue and different views on things. And as we're preparing for the show, you should. He offered this perspective 
while motorcycles remain popular all over the world. And many EVs are certainly safer than motorbikes, right? <laughs> so it depends on what you're comparing it with. And I thought that's kind of clever, and that is true. But if you compare with the traditional cars, or uh, since now fossil fuel cars are kind of out of fashion, everybody's talking about going green, then sure. What about the quote-unquote traditional EV cars? You know, they sound safer than what this miniature EV might be. So this is a key issue that manufacturers really need to sort out for customers to to want to get on board with this new addition onto the streets in, in Beijing. And also, if they're driving in the car lane, then they should be obeying to all the car rules and regulations, right? And Therefore, you know, this is one big thing that I think anybody who's looking to purchase would need to think about. And also government regulations probably need to be in place as well. I think that's a really important point that you've just touched on is that the issue possibly isn't with the NEVs, the neighborhood electric vehicles or miniature electric vehicles being safe. It's that the infrastructure, the transportation, the roads that have been built in cities haven't been built for those vehicles. They've been built for traditional um, cars, right, for uh, combustion engine vehicles that are just a different size, a different weight, and move at a different speed and carry presumably a different amount of people. So there's always going to be this friction and this difficulty when it comes to popularizing a new type of vehicle that is so drastically different looking. And it's never going to be perfect or as perfect because not just the roads, but the cities that we actually live in have been built for a different type of vehicle. If everybody was driving these mini EVs, then it would probably be better and we'd probably be able to make these developments. But as right now, they're not. There's always going to be this difficulty here. I think that's the main issue. Much is the same with autonomous vehicles, the technology of which we've had for a very long time, but are still not on our roads because they cannot live happily side by side with standard combustion engine cars. Mm. I don't think this is about being better or worse, but what's essential is different markets have different demands, even if there seems to be somewhat of an agreement of EVs in the future. And we'll keep you updated in this sector of the industry. You're listening to Roundtable. We'll be back after this break. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. You're listening to Roundtable with myself, He Young. Coming up, figures show that young people in China are in no hurry to marry. A few provinces in China saw the average age of marriage in 2022 was nearly 30. In 2010, it was 24. What has contributed to the delay? And we share with you what's made us happy this week in our special segment, Roundtable's Happy Place. Our podcast listeners can find us at Roundtable China on Apple Podcast. Give us a rating. Let us know what you think. Also, please send your voice memos and questions to EZFMRoundtable at foxmail.com. It could be answered on the show. Now on Roundtable as we continue today's discussion.
Young people in China are taking their time in finding the one before they tie the knot. New government data shows that the average age for Chinese getting married in several provinces in 2022 was nearly 30 years old, six years older than in 2010 when the average age was 24. Let's. Take a look at the numbers. What's the average age for marriage in these different regions in the country? It's no secret that Chinese young people have put off marriage to a later date. Now, marriage registration data released by the civil affairs departments from multiple provinces, including Jiangsu, Zhejiang, Henan, and some other provinces, shows that the average age of residents getting married was between 27 and 30 in the year 2022. We haven't got a national average data yet, but. These provinces have released、uh, the data regarding the average age of marriage. First, now let's just、uh, take a look at these individual provinces and see what's happening in terms of the age of first marriage. It looks okay to me. In 2022, the average age of a first marriage in Hangzhou, which is the Zhejiang provincial capital, was 28.8 years for men and 27.5 years for women. Both are slightly later than the year 2020 figure, but the average age of marriage registration was 31.7 years for men and 30 years for women. In eastern Jiangsu Province, the average age for those getting married for the first time was roughly the same, hovering around 27 years of age in the year 2022. But if we are going to look at the average age of marriage registration in the year 2022, that's 31.05. That's roughly over 31 years of age. We can see that in these coastal provinces, especially in these major cities, the average age of marriage is getting pushed back further over the previous couple of years. The data from some central provinces, for example, in Henan Province, the average age of residents. Uh, tying the knot was over 29 years of age in 2022, and in Hubei Province it was 32, according to the local media. So these all points to a general trend that is, people are getting married at a later stage in their life. We can take a reference from the figure from the year 2020. China's national average age for marriage was. 28.6 that year, and if you look at the average age in 2010, then that was 24. Yes, and you're talking a six-year difference. That's huge. That to me is a trend that's intensifying in a way. And I still remember a few years ago, and that was、um, quite a notorious notion from some people, leftover women, and we're not using that term anymore. Okay, just as a reference here, but that was like 28 or something like that for women. If you didn't get married, then you're considered as not desirable anymore. But look at now, for the first marriage age for both men and women, it's either hovering around that number or older. So. This is really big change, I think, for a lot of people who are looking at this. Josh, what about the international situation? And are we seeing sort of a similar story? 
Yeah, I think we are seeing a similar story. At least it's been steadily increasing. In the UK, the average age of marriage, according to the Office of National Statistics, is 31.5 years for women and 33.4 for men. And this sort of fluctuates, but it's steadily been increasing. It's a similar story in the US. In 2001, uh, the median age for the first wedding among women in the United States stood at 28.6 years. And for men, it was 30.6 years. So not too much difference there, a little bit older in the United Kingdom. And yeah, uh, there's many, many reasons mm -hmm. for this. I imagine that there are some differences here, but I also think that there's probably a lot of reasons that are the same in right. China and in the UK and US. Right. Before we get into that, Nijing, could you enlighten us on what did it used to be, the traditional idea of the ideal marriage age in the Chinese context? In the long past, the Chinese people <laughs> would love to see their children getting married around 20 years of age. And uh, China's marriage law stipulates that the minimum age for marriage is 22 for men and 20 for women. Over the past couple of decades, the government has been promoting the late marriage age, for example, 23 for women and 25 for men. There is this change of concept over the years. Now, marrying later has surged among Chinese millennials. Now, I think very few people will think 25 as a late marriage anymore. Right. And look how different now people are living their lives and uh, pushing marriage sort of later on into uh, the things they want to do in life. Um, Josh, what are some of the most salient factors that make young people around the world in many countries get married later? There's a few factors here, and I guess there's no better place to start than romance or ideas about love. And I think this is quite interesting, but also quite difficult to pinpoint because what is love? What is romance? But anyway, one of the biggest online dating sites, at least I think the most famous one, one of the first ones that's called eHarmony, which exists in the US, Europe, and of course, in my own country, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, they've done a lot of surveys on this kind of thing. And although it sounds like, oh, what could a dating site tell us? They've actually got quite a bit of weight to their research eHarmony, just given the thousands and thousands of people that have used it over the last 20 years or so. And according to some new research by eHarmony, young adults are not only marrying and having children later in life than previous generations, but taking more time to get to know each other beforehand. So this is also an important point to remember. It's not, I think often when we talk about marriage and late marriage, we think that people aren't doing anything romantic beforehand. And then they suddenly wake up one day and say, right, I'm going to get married now. But that's not true, right? Actually, it seems as though people are taking a lot longer time to get to know each other. So it doesn't mean that people aren't as a couple for any shorter amount of time. In fact, people could still be together and be in a serious relationship for a, a very long time. It's just that they decide to get married later. Uh, I think that, I hope that makes sense. And, and if that is the case, then are we really getting together any later? It's difficult to say because mm. we have statistics on marriage. We don't have statistics on when we decide to be boyfriend and girlfriend, right? So I think that's an important point. There's another point that I think is really important. That's about careers, mm. right? And I think this is probably something that transcends national boundaries. 
I think both men and women alike tend to want to advance their careers a lot more before quote unquote settling down. People have this idea about financial security and they talk about this often when they talk about marriage, they talk about financial security, when they talk about having children, getting a dog, whatever, <laughs> right? It's, I need to be financially secure and safe before that happens. I'm not sure if this was always the case. And a lot of sociologists and psychologists who study relationships, they say that this sort of practical, no-nonsense attitude towards marriage has become also become more of the norm since women have become more prominent and important in the workforce. And obviously, uh, in previous decades, uh, as we know, this was not the case. And so now it also means that women are also more likely to take a bit longer to focus on their career. And it seems as though marriage might be an obstacle to this, uh, if this is the case. I want to echo Josh's point. I've read somewhere people nowadays are spending way longer time in a relationship before they make up their mind and enter marriage. There's There are some other factors I think have contributed to young people's decision of rather having a late marriage. Here in China, one reason is the prolonged schooling years. If people want to go through college and perhaps some other uh, study or work trainings, it takes them quite long years. The Gen Zs um, have become the new subjects of marriage nowadays but they are mostly uh, growing up in an environment where work pressure is intense and they are facing a lot of other pressures in life. Before they even think about getting married, they first think about the financial challenges. For example, should I have a house before I get married or do I need to have a very secure future? Um, like a job future before I can settle down and start a family. These these are the things that are weighing on the minds of the young people nowadays. And there are some other things that are helping uh, shaping the attitudes towards marriage nowadays. For example, a lot of the women uh, are self-sufficient. They do not need to depend on their husbands for a living. With that in mind, they will start to think about self-fulfillment. I have my own career objectives. I might want to achieve those objectives before I think about a marriage, like settling down and start a family. And when they think about starting a family, they think about its potential impact on their future career prospects. Also, there's another thing that's the friend's influence. Since the whole society is gearing towards late marriage and they have all the social media sharing stories about how they are finding it hard to get their ideal Mr. or Mrs. Right, they also are to a certain extent influenced by this and people are having a better idea of what sort of family they want to have, what sort of person they want to share their whole life with. I can totally see from the female standing point why women are putting marriage maybe on the back burner a little bit more than they used to. Because just think about this. You've spent the same amount of time in education as your male counterparts, and you possibly do better than him. You've worked so hard in your life to get to this point, and you finally get a job. 
and you want to see how well I can do here because I've prepared my lifetime to be here. And therefore, of course, you're going to spend more time at work for a few years as you're just joining the workforce. But traditionally, decades ago, if you compare, then that's the age when women would be searching for suitors and see if they can settle down and get married. But now women are like, well, I'm competing in the workforce just like men. And I want to make something worthwhile in my life. And it could be in the family. It could be at work. And also, I see some people criticize women for saying that maybe she's putting career goals ahead of marriage goals. But sometimes it's not so clear cut. It's not like she's so career driven that she doesn't want love in her life. It's not like that. I think we can all agree as men and women, human beings, now a lot of marriageable, eligible, normal people, average people believe that the primary goals for marriage are spiritual and a higher standard of living. So how can you achieve that? It has something to do with work. It has something to do with family. It has something to do with maybe a very healthy romantic or however relationship you've established for yourself in life. So it's a complex mixture of all these different factors that contribute to the decision of marriage for people these days. And therefore, well, there's a lot to be considered if I hear maybe in the background there is this little noise that is, well, um, why can't you get married a bit earlier? Maybe. Don't wait until you're 30 years old or whatnot. And that noise is maybe has something to do with the decline in the population in this country as well. So, well, what are some of these maybe um, challenges or these obstacles that people see in their lives that, you know, you need to clear them up before getting people excited, maybe, about marriage and possibly getting married a little bit earlier. I think that there's never a right time, but I guess that people do worry a lot about being financially stable. I guess as as we do move towards more individualistic societies and being more self-reliant, more independent, I think that this is quite a common thing around the world um, as countries develop. At least that seems to be the case in my own country. And so therefore, people often do have this idea. I know in the UK, because we're quite independent minded as individuals and family isn't as financially close, or at least this is less commonplace. So when people do consider things like marriage and then have started a family, they do worry a lot about having their own financial security. Mm. Um, and, I, and I wonder if this is what's happening in China as well. And if this is why now people are concerned about this hurdle. And I mean, I'm not sure what else there really is. I guess there's the idea of finding true love as well mm -hmm. um, for, for many people. Is this more important than it used to be to find true love? I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know if there's any way to really measure that. I think that uh, maybe to some degree, people might be slightly less concerned about the other person being fin financially stable. Mm -hmm. um, and that might arguably mean that you end up with somebody based just on your feelings um, towards their personality, their character, rather than their stability mm -hmm. financially. But I don't know. I'm just speculating. 
Well, yeah, one of the things that drives me to work hard is that one day if I want to get married or if I find that somebody, however much he earns is not going to be a concern of mine. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that sort of motivates me as well at work and advancing my career and stuff. Okay, Ningjing, what do you see as the uh, possible hurdles that would best be cleared up before people want to get married, maybe a bit earlier? Well, in China, a lot of the young people are worrying about the very practical issues they are facing, for example, housing and work pressure and child rearing before they decide to get married and start a family. Uh, although this late marriage has become a trend, according to some Chinese experts, it is expected. And they are also saying the first marriage in this country is much earlier than in many other developed countries. Having said that, they are also saying that um, the government, like the government needs to encourage people's willingness to marriage because um, fewer marriages means low birth rate to a certain extent. And ensuring employment uh, increase the income level of the young people, strengthening public facilities for the child rearing and also create those working environment that is mother and women friendly. All these things will help encourage more young people tying the knot. Coming up next, we invite you to join us in Roundtable's Happy Place. Delivery, delivery, delivery. What is it? Happiness from Roundtable. Josh Cotterell, what's your happy place this week? Well, recently I've been trying to read a lot more about this philosopher that I, I used to I used to read when I was studying at university a little bit, but I never really thought about it much until recently when I was feeling quite stressed after the new year. There was a lot of things happening and there's so much going on around you. And I think we all know about this idea of not trying to control things that you can't control and things like this. But did you know that all of this actually comes from a philosopher? And of course, when we go all the way back to the ancient, and I'm talking about um, Greek philosophy specifically right now, and I'm sure that there's a lot of synonymous philosophy that has happened all over the world. But as we know, in Western philosophy, we often trace it back to Greek philosophy. And this philosopher is called Epictetus, right? And he is a proponent of the field of philosophy known as Stoicism. And I think this is one of the most famous, most well-known ones. It's the philosophy of letting go of what you can't control. And it's not just about controlling your emotions, but it's about trying to put energy into things that you know is worth putting your energy into. And one of his quotes, I think one of his most famous ones is, um, don't explain your philosophy which is what I'm doing right now, <laughs> but embody it, right? And it means to to really try and practice it and live it. Practice it as you would a sport or you would learning a musical instrument and try and apply it to your daily life. So that's what I'm trying to do. It's a little bit general because if I start to make it too personal, it'll probably get too personal in capital T double O. But that's my happy place right now. And I must admit that this kind of philosophy, this stoicism, has given me a lot of peace. Fantastic. It's always to find some peace in all the noise and chaos that we see in our lives. So I'm glad to hear that from you, my friend. Ningjing, what do you have for us? 
My source of happiness comes from watching the rock and roll stand-up comedy shows, which has entertained so many people over the past couple of years. I managed to find some time to watch, to catch up some of the bits and pieces from last year's show that I've missed, and I enjoyed those ones, mocking workplace dilemmas, often the long-standing. Ailments that bother a lot of the employees, but somehow very hard to address. For example, the bosses try to motivate employees with empty promises that we often see in workplaces. So these sort of stand-up comedy lines often resonate with the things that we come across in real life. And there is another type that I quite like.、Um, that is the the mocking of human. Characters, the shortcomings, the weak points—I quite enjoy those ones. Yeah, I totally know what you're saying here, Ningjing. Sometimes when I watch those videos, I'm laughing, but I might have a slight tear just rolling down the corner of my eye. It's like, oh, that's a bit cynical, but anyway, it's always good to have a good laugh watching a video or in life. What I have for you is a place I found that literally is my happy place. Well, sometimes when you don't know what to eat, you just fire up your dumping app or Yelp equivalent wherever you live. And my story starts with that. My friend and I we were feeling a bit peckish, and we decided to explore. And find a new restaurant to dine, and a little bistro topped the most popular Western cuisine list in Chaoyang District. We examined the customer review section. The reviews looked authentic. <laughs> no social media KOLs with too many filters and carefully choreographed videos. So we decided to give it a go. And oh man, oh man, it was quite a hidden gem in the city. The food was delicious, mainly of Chinese and Western fusion style. This is the Chinese bit. Sliced pig ear as a starter, which was delicious, crunchy and flavorful. <laughs> and there's this other thing. Beretta cheese salad is an Italian cow's milk, occasionally buffalo milk cheese made from mozzarella and cream. That was really nice, and they do this really tasty seafood linguine. And tiramisu is the best you can dream of in this price range. But recently, they've replaced the tiramisu with a lava cake. Double chocolate, so it's really heavenly, like when it melts in your mouth. So naturally, I wanted to find out more about the mind behind the restaurant, and here's their story. Two women business partners started their own business more than a year ago, and they studied and worked in the food business extensively in Europe and in China. They've worked in five star hotels, learned about fine dining, and are food and beverage enthusiasts. Themselves who want to share their passion with the world, and I have two takeaways from this happy place. One is go out and support your local small businesses. They add color to the community and make up for the fabric of the neighborhood, and they create job opportunities for people too. So of course, I mean this is not charity. If you like what they have to offer, go support them. Second of all, the restaurant industry. Was once referred to as male centric, 
and it has evolved so much with women increasingly taking the lead. And these women have not only managed to become change makers with their hard work and innovative ideas and skill, and they've also proven time and time again that they have what it takes to be the driving force of the food and beverage space. So if you have a big dream, if you want something to change, well, be the change that you wish to see in the world. And it could be starting your own business or something else. That's my happy place. Thank you so much, Ningjing and Josh Cotterell for joining the discussion. I'm He Young. We'll see you next time.